0: A reading from Paul's letter to the Romans whoever loves another person
1: has fulfilled the law the commandments don't commit adultery don't murder don't steal don't desire what others have any other commandments they're all summed up in one word you must love your neighbor as yourself Love doesn't do anything wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is what fulfills the law.
0: This is one of our sacred teachings. Thanks be to God.
2: When we first come to the conversation of what it means to be queer, Christians tend to start with the same tired question.
3: Is it a sin to be gay? Doesn't the Bible say it's wrong?
2: So we open our Bible, or more likely we open Google, and we type something to the effect of
3: Bible verses about being gay.
2: And that's where we find them, the clobber passages.
3: It's a popular term for the six passages of scripture that have too often been fashioned into weapons to clobber queer people into submission and shame.
2: We start to walk through them and we begin at the beginning in the book of Genesis chapter 19.
3: All the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them.
2: And we all know what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah after that. At a certain point we realize that doesn't really sit right because this story isn't so much about being gay as it is gang raping a vulnerable traveler that needed shelter. Even the prophet Ezekiel wrote, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and the needy. So we move on to the second and third on the list of clobber passages, a pair of verses from Leviticus, Leviticus 18:22 and 2013.:
3: "Do not have sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman. That is an abomination. If a man has sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman, both of them have done what is detestable. They are to be put to death. their blood will be on their own heads.
2: And this one seems pretty clear and straightforward. But then we start looking around the Hebrew law a little more. You shall not eat the flesh of a pig nor touch their carcasses. They are unclean to you. You shall not wear a garment upon you of two kinds of material mixed together. You shall not make any tattoo marks upon yourself. Seeing as we still eat bacon, touch footballs, wear polyester and get tattoos, sometimes even tattoos of crosses, we start to ask, what's the difference? We aren't using those passages to condemn people. Why?
3: We realize there are Hebrew laws that assume men have the God-given right to own women and slaves, and we've pretty well set those aside. Why? Well, because these aren't ageless, eternal words of truth. They're examples of a people seeking God and setting boundaries within a particular cultural context. And as our context and understanding of God has changed, so has the way we understand these passages.
2: All right, we think, but that's the Hebrew scriptures. Christians tend to emphasize, well, the Christian scriptures. So we'll dive in there with Romans 1.
3: For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error.
2: And right off the bat, there are three things that stand out as not quite right. The word natural, for example. Do same-sex relationships not happen in nature? Look a little closer and we find out that Paul is using natural synonymously with what we're culturally used to. Breaking gender roles then, that's outside of cultural bounds and that's unnatural but by that standard, a lot of what conservative evangelicals do today would come across as unnatural to Paul. How many women leave their hair exposed during worship? That's just unnatural.
3: And then there's consumed with passion. Paul seems to assume all same-sex relationships are only ever the result of unbridled promiscuity which in his context makes sense because the only thing he has any cultural experience with when it comes to same-sex relationships is pedophilia, prostitution, and masters taking advantage of slaves. The problem is, of course, that when we're talking about same-sex relationships, that's not what we're talking about at all.
2: And finally, Paul seems to be assuming that it's a choice. He seems to be saying that they're choosing same-sex relationships when they could just as easily choose heterosexual relationships. But if we've learned anything from the painful failures and humbling apologies of conversion therapy ministries, it's that this has nothing to do with choice. Paul is doing the best he can with his understanding of how sexuality works, but fortunately, we know better. So, going down the list, we move to 1 Corinthians 6, which really gets to the heart of some of the problems we're dealing with here.
3: Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, and you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God.
2: And by this point, we've done our research, and we say, whoa, 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 translators, flag on the play. You just took two very different words and smashed them together into this charged phrase, men who practice homosexuality. Even King James knew better than that.
3: In Paul's litany of the unrighteous, of the people who let their egos block their way to the kingdom of God, Paul lists two kinds of people. In Greek, it's the malakoi and the arsenikete. So first there's the malakoi, which means, problematically, womanish. It means soft, weak, unable to rule even over your own body or control yourself, giving in to whatever craving you have because That was their cultural understanding of what it meant to be a woman. Now that's clearly a problem and deserves a whole other conversation, but a lazy glutton who is unable to practice self-control? That's not what we mean when we say gay.
2: Then there's the arsenicate, which to be fair is a conjunction of the words male and bed. But, In just about every other usage of the word in ancient Greek literature, it has something to do with economic exploitation through sex, which kind of makes more sense in Paul's lists since the two sins that follow it are thievery and greed. In
3: 1946 though, translators started retroactively projecting their own cultural baggage onto these terms and forcing them together into the word homosexual. In reality, though, they have nothing to do with what we're talking about when we talk about LGBTQ justice.
2: And finally, we come to 1 Timothy 1. However, this text is actually using the same words from 1 Corinthians, so there's really no need to spend much more time with this one.
3: So maybe we start celebrating. We feel like we're off the hook, we've seen what the Bible really says, and there's no problem with LGBTQ rights. Right?
2: I'm afraid not. Turns out there's still a problem with how we're approaching the Bible in the first place. See when we talked about the Malakoi translation issue, how it means womanish, the best we could do there was shift our interpretation from heterosexist to just regular old sexist. And that's without even touching the texts justifying slavery or the genocide of entire people groups. The truth is. This isn't a question of exploring what the Bible says or what the Bible really says, because even though we wish it were otherwise, the Bible is contradictory and fraught with cultural bias, sexism, racism, ableism, and all sorts of other problems.
3: Now, for folks who are emerging from a legalistic understanding of the Christian faith, it's often really important for them to spend the time digging into the context around those clobber passages. And if that's where you need to spend time, by all means, do it. But in my experience, people who spend any amount of time really sitting with the implications of those passages and how they've been used, find themselves opening up a door to an entirely different way of relating to scripture, and it changes everything.
2: What if instead of treating the scriptures like they were written by the hand of God as eternal, unchanging, perfect laws and commandments, we treat them as a collection of literature composed by different people from different times with different prejudices and biases?
3: What if we treat them like what they actually are, as a diverse collection of stories, poems, letters, and history testifying not about any objective God, but about God as they understood God in their time through a cultural lens that, just like ours, changed and evolved through the years?
2: And what if that's what the Bible is trying to help us do? to point beyond itself and help us find God in our own experiences, to see our own cultural lenses and biases more clearly and better distinguish what is from God and what isn't.
3: Martin Luther, who had a whole host of problematic prejudices we won't get into right now, but was also the father of the Protestant Reformation, once wrote, "'The Bible is the cradle wherein Christ is laid, In other words, the Bible is only as useful as it points beyond itself and towards Christ.
2: So it's okay to say that not all scriptures are equally inspired, because some are far more about fear and prejudice than they are about God. We could be totally wrong about our interpretations of the clobber passages, but it doesn't matter. We have to judge them by how they reflect Christ's love or fail to do that
3: or as Jesus and Paul both put it, the entire law is fulfilled in keeping this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. So what if we start judging scriptures, teachings and our own lives, not by shifting cultural standards that happened to be written down at one point in history, but whether or not they really are expressions of the spirit of love.
2: What if we thought in terms of whether or not they bear the fruit of the Spirit, of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control? What if we started evaluating things by how much they look like, feel like, sound like Christ? And if anyone wants to say that this is just a pick-and-choose way of reading Scripture—
3: then just ask them how many slaves they own or when the last time was that they stoned someone. Because there is no such thing as just following what the Bible says. And there is no objective reading of scripture. There is only the ability to name the lenses and standards through which we're reading it. Our lens is love. Our standard is Christ.
2: How many stories do we have about people realizing that they were wrong and making this shift? How many stories do we have of people thinking that God wholeheartedly disapproved of something or hated someone because of what the Bible clearly says, only then to be corrected by the spirit of love?
3: The Bible clearly says you shall not eat unclean animals. And then there's Peter, learning that what God has called clean, no one should call unclean.
2: The Bible clearly says that you shall circumcise boys on the eighth day. And then there's Paul, learning that the spirit is just as alive in uncircumcised Gentiles as circumcised Jews.
3: The Bible clearly says, you shall refrain from work on the Sabbath under penalty of stoning. And then there's Jesus picking grain and healing people on the Sabbath because the Sabbath is for our restoration, not for our oppression.
2: The Bible clearly says that you shall not engage in same-sex relationships or step outside of gender norms. But then there's you. You show us that queer people are just as much reflections of God's image, just as beloved and worthy of love as anyone else. Over and over, we've made assumptions about who was in and who was out.
3: And over and over, we, the church, were wrong. And we are sorry. In our exclusion and certainty, we have sinned, in thought, in word, and in deed, in what we have done, and in what we have failed to do. And LGBTQAI plus children of God, we ask your forgiveness.
2: This party was never ours to keep you out of. And come to find out, the party isn't complete without you. The church doesn't need to tolerate you as if you were an aberration from the norm who would choose to be straight or cis if only you could. No, you don't need to change. You don't need to want to change. You are not an aberration that the church has to settle for because you can't be normal. Why would you choose to be otherwise? You were created the way you are and it is good and it is worthy of celebration, it is worthy of pride.
3: The scales having fallen from our eyes, we are done trying to justify queer people or relationships. We are done trying to make a case for it as if the beauty and fruit of your lives did not speak for themselves.
2: We need you in order to see God more clearly because you reveal something of God's image that only you can reveal. You teach us something about being a child of God that only you can teach. And the time has come to name that and to bless it without hesitation or reserve. So blessed are you, child of God.
3: Blessed are the lesbians and the gays, for you show us that the power of love is greater than the tyranny of fear. Blessed are the bisexuals, for you show us a God dissatisfied with oppressive categories and absolutes.
2: Blessed are the trans sisters and brothers, for you reveal a God who tells the truth about the way things are, even when they appear otherwise.
3: Blessed are the genderqueer, the intersexual and non-binary for in you we see that God created humans in God's own image, which is both male and female and something that transcends them both.
2: Blessed are the asexual, for you reveal a God whose expressions of love are infinite.
3: Blessed are the polyamorous, for you reveal a love unmarred by selfishness and avarice.
2: Blessed are the pansexual, for you reveal the wide and boundless love of God.
3: Blessed are the drag queens, for you are like a field of wildflowers, revealing something of God's boldness, beauty, and pride.
2: Blessed are you, wherever you fall in the LGBTQAI plus alphabet soup, because child of God, The divine spirit burns in your soul like fire. And you are worthy of love just exactly as you are. To everyone within and outside of our walls, happy Pride Month. Alleluia and Amen.
1: day as a gay Christian thinking back on the days when being gay and a Christian were unimaginable you need to know that it will get better all of the years in Sunday school and the church sermons that damned you to hell by so-called men of God have you confused you had a gut feeling that something wasn't right that was your knowing your God telling you that you are good You are loved the way you are. How can this be? How can you be gay? How can you still love God? How can you be gay and a Christian? I know your heart is ripping in two. You feel torn between two worlds. Two worlds that seem so far apart. Trust your knowing. Trust what God has put inside of you. It's okay to cry. It's okay to feel the pain of losing some of your friends and family. It will get better. Choosing between being true to yourself and being a Christian was the hardest decision for you. I know. Don't punish yourself for choosing yourself over God. You didn't know that you could be gay and a Christian. Your church told you differently. It's getting better. Oh, but now. Now you are complete. You've accepted that God was always in your big gay heart. It's still okay to cry. It's still okay to grieve the loss of friends and family. Just remember to look at the new friends that God gave you. And the family that stood by your side. It's still getting better.
2: thank you for being here today. It's our hope that being in this space, you have known yourself loved and opened yourself in some way to God's presence so that we can go forth and share the love that we have found. We have just a few announcements before we disperse.
3: We hope that you'll join us for the next two weeks as we have some guests in the pulpit, although the first isn't really a guest. Our pastor Emeritus Welton gaddy will offer the sermon next week, and the following week, Paula Dempsey from the Alliance of Baptists will preach. We look forward to hearing from both of them, and we hope that you'll make a point to tune in. I also want to offer a reminder that there is still an opportunity to join in on the holy idea offered by DH Clark to form a group to focus in on Northminster's work toward racial justice. And you can find out more information about that and how to sign up in the newsletter from this past week.
2: And now, people of God, receive this benediction. If here you have found freedom, take it with you into the world. If you've found comfort, go and share it with others. If you've dreamed dreams, help one another that they may come true. And if you have known love, go give some back to a bruised and hurting world. You are seen and you are loved. Go in peace.